Horrific Network Entertainment. What is going on, everybody? Hope you guys are doing well, great, wonderful. The holiday season vastly approaching next week, as a matter of fact. Kind of crazy to think that 2021 is almost over, man. Like the amount of content that we did, the amount of work that we did. Uh, the amount of work that everybody that I know has done this year compared to what the restrictive levels of 2020 presented are definitely uh, very significant because 2021 was really like the renaissance of creativity in a lot of ways. And I think that uh, here on the podcast, 2022 is going to be the fruit of that. Um a lot of good came out of this year for us. A lot of, you know, dipping our toes in the things and maybe it wasn't ready quite yet. So, but the biggest thing, man, is uh, the support that you guys, if you've listened to any of our podcasts this year, I hope that you have had a lot of fun on the uh, journey that was getting back into the swing of things that 2021 was, really. It was us coming back surviving continuing to uh to work at uh getting uh, content out for you guys as well as being able to experience like halloween again and being able to continue to make films and being able to uh you know build new uh relationships and partnerships so it's all been fun getting back into uh Sinister Creature Con um, and getting to be able to see their ways of doing it from the inside instead of just going to an event as media or a patron, but to see the production of producing a con during Corona, that was awesome. And that hasn't even been covered hardly enough, man. We've the podcast interview requests have been. Uh, coming in and we've been getting as many of these out for you uh, as fastly as possible uh, as well as the backlog of like sinister creature con panels or uh, god even halfway to halloween panels that never made it onto the uh, podcast thread that still might just because they're dope conversations and they deserve to be highlighted again and then it just kind of like starts all over then we got campfire chronicles and the second halfway to Halloween is happening, and well, as well as this film, like stuff is picking up. Stuff is definitely picking up, and I'm I'm stoked for it, man. The uh, thing I'm not stoked for is like five days of rain in a row, which we definitely, as a state, could use the rain. But man, not a whole lot of fun going on here right now, and. Uh, that is on the heels of Spider-Man No Way Home coming out this week. 
and Nightmare Alley in the horror world coming out this week, which I am actually going to have to drive like 20 minutes, 30 minutes away to go see it. It's not playing anywhere in uh, Modesto, which is wild, especially for like a chain like Regal, which has it. But I don't know. Maybe it was a screen thing. I, I don't know. Today, though, man, my guest, Timothy Stewart Jones, composer. He did like uh, Chuck and some other fun things, American Pie. He is now working on a horror film or worked on a horror film called Hide and Seek, a remake, which he'll get into, of a Korean horror film. I really enjoyed this interview. Talking to Timothy was a lot of fun, a lot of cool insights as to you know how work is in the industry kind of like the the composer version of what sean did on our last horrific podcast and the uh, indie horror production side of things and talking with him so this was a cool talk with with tim and uh, i hope that you enjoy it and i'll be back all right guys we are Super stoked to have with us on the podcast a, another composer whose work it seems like horror movies are coming out here even in, during the holiday season that look damn good and very eerie and as I say sound like a broken record no pun intended as our guest is a composer but without a creepy soundtrack without that uh, music you lose a lot of the scary so I am excited right now to have with me uh, Timothy Stewart-Jones, who is the composer for uh, film Hide and Seek, which I believe is available to see right now. Um, And I know it did uh, a theater run with uh, some theaters in some cities, but VOD is probably your best bet if you're looking to check this thing out. Looks incredibly creepy and uh, i'm excited to talk to timothy about it but first and foremost man thank you for uh, coming on board and doing an interview with us absolutely jimmy my pleasure and uh this will be fun um so i know yeah i've gotten um through the guys at pr i've gotten to talk to a lot of composers and I, every composer has a different take on what makes a score scary. So I want to get into that with you. But first and foremost, just you know, congratulations on the work on Hide and Seek, as it's your the most recent one to kind of hit viewers' eyes and be put out there. What was this film like for you to uh, get to add your your take? Uh, to the cinematic music for Well, this one was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's a, it's a remake. And so it, uh, I had seen the original Korean film and really enjoyed it. It was very claustrophobic and creepy and, you know, people living in your walls. And um, so I was excited to, to get into this and, and Joel David Moore, uh, the director, uh, is a friend. I, I had known him a bit from uh, working on Chuck. Uh, he had been on a few of the episodes and a close friend of Zach Levi, uh, the lead. And so, uh, you know, I, I think when I started the process, uh, I scored a scene uh, for Joel just to kind of give him an idea of 
where I might go uh, with the score. And it was a scene with Jonathan Rhys Meyers. He shows up in this this apartment that is just disgusting. I mean, it's like every kind of disease you can imagine in there. And uh, it also had some sort of flashback elements to it. And we're also introduced to the film's antagonist, this sort of character we called Moto, which uh, he always has this black motorcycle helmet on and, and black clothes and looks pretty cool. Um, so I got a chance to kind of get some themes going and, you know, ideas that, that ended up being spun into the score almost completely. The, the apartment in which you're talking about, you can see when you, if you watch the trailer right now, if you use YouTube hide and seek 2021, the trailer will pop right up. But uh, this thing plays very much uh, almost like the Prince and the Pauper where he's going to try to find his uh, his brother, estranged brother that he hasn't seen. And then, yeah, the apartment, which you talk about, is super <laughs> creepy looking, super. And you can kind of get a vibe immediately as to where it's going to go. I didn't know it was a, a remake of a Korean film, which I'll have to check out the Korean, the original, just because the the stuff that, that Asian horror cinema is, seems like, it is always terrifying, at least to me. And so the concepts which they come up with are very eye-opening and not concepts that uh, American filmmakers, especially in the horror genre, traditionally will come up with. So I guess you could say that for international film as a whole, but always seems like it's a hit and it's scary. So and American uh, filmmakers, they bring that over quite often as I was growing up of like stuff like The Grudge and The Ring and all um, the great Japanese, you know, cult classics. So to know that this is kind of, you know, the Korean uh, story is where it originated at is makes me even more excited to go back, see the original and then see what you guys put together. But I mean, you, you talked about Jonathan Reese Myers. That's a, a heavy hitting name to a lot of film fans. Um, when you're doing, when you're scoring a film like that and you get to sit there and you watch a name like Jonathan Reese Myers, like, does that add like another like level of excitement to your, to your job? I assume it has to. Absolutely. I mean, you know, somebody like Jonathan's been doing it such a long time and he, um, you know, good actors just, they bring their own subtext and they bring the backstory. And so they, they really flesh these characters out in front of you. And um, then I get the opportunity to kind of come in and lay some flooring under them and, you know, support what they're doing. Um, and with somebody like Jonathan, that's, that's pretty easy. You know, he really, he made my job easy in that, you know, he really, this, this guy just starts to go nuts, you know, as, yeah. as you know, I mean, you've seen it and it's just sort of this downward spiral. And um, that's kind of a fun journey to take musically, you know, cause you, you want to do things that are, that, that create that sense of, you know, just, um, just confusion really almost in the character and, and, and his backstory and all of that. But, so anyway, in, in answer to your question, yeah, it's it's a blast because they're they're really good at what they do. So, 
with that, do you um, do you ever get to go visit the set? I did, I know that seems like um, with post production or musical composition, it seems like it's it's hit and miss across the board. Like some composers or editors love to be on set to get like that vibe, and then they go back to the studio. Um, are their office that they're an editor and they sit down and they're like, okay, this is how seeing it in person made me feel. Let me see if I can interpret that into, in your case, the score. Or do you like your approach? Do you like not really um, do that as much as you're just like seeing like dailies and, and the actual like rough cuts and all that kind of stuff? It's an interesting question because um I don't visit the set very often on a feature. Um, often they're in, in far off places. This was filmed in New York, I think, mm -hmm. uh, exclusively. Um, but when I did a TV show, when I did that, uh, the music for Chuck on NBC, um, I got to know quite a lot of the cast reasonably well. And, you know, I would go for, we had some on-camera things that they were doing, like for the this band Jeffster that um, was, to the guys from the Buy More had and did all the cover tunes. That was a blast. Um, but so I had sometimes I have a, a you know requirement to be here to kind of monitor what they're doing and make sure that we're going to be able to do what we need to do in post. Um, but I'll also say that I think it makes my job more difficult when I know these people as people. You know. When I'm looking at them on the screen, they're the characters that they've worked so hard to inhabit. And, you know, when when I know Yvonne Strahovski, you know, and then suddenly I'm scoring Sarah. I mean, I know it's Yvonne doing Sarah on screen, but it's, um, you know, it's just it's just different because, you, you know, these people and they're they're great, you know. And um, so I don't know. It's, it's obviously I can still do my job, but it's. Um, it's almost easier if I don't know, you know, how the sausage is made on the other end um, and just kind of <laughs> jump into, into the story on, on my end. With your experience on Chuck, I got to imagine that the turnaround time for like a, a syndicated series like that is a lot faster paced production wise as to when they need a score for an episode versus a feature and you know, maybe you can take your time a little bit more. You know, is that um, the case? Like, are you, when you were doing Chuck was working at a way more rapid pace as that's a, you know, weekly show versus this being a, a feature film. Like what, what would you say your uh, pluses and uh, minuses of each kind of environment are? Well, the, the, the pace on TV is very fast. And I think at a certain t amount, it's, it's a little bit of a detriment because you don't get to, to lavish the time on a cue that you would on a film, you know. Um, but you're also moving fast, so it's over quickly. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have, a, you have a week to score an episode. And, you know, some of these episodes had, you know, 30 minutes of music in them or more. And, you know, I wasn't scoring it as it was TV. I, I was scoring it as if it were a film. So it, we, I was definitely busy and, um, but it was fun. You know, it's, it was, it was cool to kind of go for a big production value on a TV program, you know, 
Um, and, you know, obviously people are for sure, but some of these limited series, I think they have more time, you know, yeah. when, um, so it's, uh, yeah, TV's, TV's a freight train, man. It's like every week you just gotta, you gotta bang that music out. So it's fun though. The score for ready are for ready or not for hide and seek. Uh, th there's drastic changes as far as, before shit hits the fan and then once the shit hits the fan and like you said like he really slips into like this downward spiral of the things surrounding him and then that kind of encapsulating him internally to drive him to the point which he gets drove in like when you get a character like that and they're taking you on this ride that they're taking you on what is kind of your approach to scoring an arc as significant as, as that? Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. Um, I, you know, I kind of saw it as different worlds because he, he was living in this sort of money bubble, you know, mm -hmm. in New York, upper crust and, you know, has a driver. And um, so once the gloves came off and he kind of left that world and went into the other world where his brother was or where he was looking for his brother, um, the score kind of went from being a little more elegant, actually, you know, they're a little more orchestral to it got pretty mean, you know, fast. And so a lot of the sounds are sharp. They're, um, they're also sounds you wouldn't necessarily know what they are. You know, I kind of wanted it to sound like, well, uh, you know, I don't know. I, if someone would say, oh, I know that's a violin with a thing. Well, I didn't want you to know that. Right. I just wanted you to feel this sound and have it be a lot about the texture of the place because it, it feels so slimy and also unpredictable, you know? So there's moments in the score that really leap out at you. And I don't know, maybe that's one of the things you responded to um, yeah. when you say that it's, it's kind of different. And um, so, you know, it was just a... a you know, I, I had a chance to do some really cool, you know, textures because I, I think about music a lot that way. And, you know, things can have a, a really prickly texture or they can be really aggressive or, you know, and I take a lot away from the color on the screen as well. Um, mm -hmm. They had that sort of dark yellow in the, the room that I was talking about when he first goes in there that just feels gross, infected, <laughs> you know. And so um, it, it's kind of a, a challenge to, well, the challenge is to go in and, and convey that musically. And for me, it's, it's these, these textures that you, you don't know what it is, but it makes you feel a certain way, you know? And, and then I think one of the most important things that I tried to do in this score was uh, go silent when there isn't any music. And I think that's probably one of the most effective tricks that I have because when you go silent and then everyone's like, okay, what's, you know, and then bam, you know, and you get them. And that's, that's, you know, any, that's, that's the good jump scare right there. So. Yeah. That's one of those things in horror movies where that dead noise is terrifying, especially <laughs> when you know, when you know something is going to happen Right, and then you cut that because, like I said when I was introducing you, I get, 
music makes it that much scarier. But in a lot of scary movies, music is almost like a security blanket because it is a tonality of if it's a certain type of music, you know, at least you think you know that nothing scary is going to happen. And then when, you know, that that tonality kind of shifts, um, whether it be like environmental change, time of day change, whatever, you're like, okay, we're gearing up. Something's going right. to happen. Um, but yeah, the uncomfortability of like no, no music, like no noise, just you, that can really put you in the, the, place of the character in that scene so yeah, that, yeah that's actually a really good a really good call the uh you just kind of mentioned people not wanting to know what you used for a certain sound effect what is the most unique thing in your career that you have uh composed something with would you say um well, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that I used on this film was pretty cool. It was, uh, it's called a hammered dulcimer and I don't have it here, but it, it's kind of a, like a triangle shape. And I know people in the podcast can't see this, but, <laughs> but it has strings. okay. All right. So it has strings that go across like this. And I used a couple of small violin bows to kind of bow it. And it was all, it was really out of tune to begin with, which was great. Um, but then I put like a electronic pickup on it and I ran it into this, um, into this thing, which is very dusty, but it's called a boomerang and it's a, it's a, it's a looper. And so when you put sound into it, then it starts to kind of go around in a loop like this. Right. And so then I could start stacking sounds on top of each other, like bending the strings with my hand while bowing them. And you get these just really weird little textures and things going on that, that I wouldn't necessarily know, you know, how, how that was done. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. I, I use a, uh, a friend of mine designs a bunch of sounds um, for me on just about everything I do. And I think on this one, we used like swarms of bees that he took and he tuned into certain chords and things so that I could write music around them. Um, flocks of birds that, that we tuned up into like a C minor chord. <laughs> you know? And uh, it's pretty interesting when you hear like na natural sounds that have been kind of put into a, you know, a, a tuning like that. It's, it's not something you hear every day. Well, you don't hear it ever actually. <laughs> yeah, it's not something that you think about either like i never would have, have thought to put in like bees or birds in tune as part of as part of like a bigger composition that's pretty wild um, it was fun yeah the, people uh, have a reaction to natural sound too you know we're, we're all used to hearing animals and and outdoor sounds and i don't know I, this may be off base i i think there's something to this where you know, I've even used like uh, we used some some wolves as well and that we tuned and, and did things to. And I think there's something in our DNA that says, you know, those are wolves. We should like be careful right now because the tribe might get eaten, you know. <laughs> so there might be like a visceral response. And, and I don't know, it could be total crap, but um, it, it they just evoke a certain feeling. And, and it's pretty cool when they're natural sounds that have been incorporated. That's one thing in film school they always told us is that no matter where 
you know, what, you know, tracks you're grabbing from the uh, public domain library to do your, your underscores with uh, you always got to go find um, room noise or some kind of like white noise, depending on where the scene takes place and whether that's just letting your camera run wherever you're filming at for and just filming like a tree for, you know, five minutes or whatever. So you have that environmental noise because that's mm-hmm. another thing that you don't, um, I guess you so you take for granted of once it's gone, you're going to notice it right away. But when it's there, it's just kind of there and you're accustomed to it being there all the time. Right. Um, right. So what was it? I mean, you mentioned Chuck, which my, one of my friends and I are very uh, uh, team DC. So getting to, uh, to do Chuck was Zach Levi before he, he, he goes on to become Shazam, but that yeah. show, that show in itself um, was really like a cult classic of a TV show there. Um, and you've done horror movies and stuff, but what what was it that got you into film at the beginning? Like everybody has a film that they were like, I want to make movies or I want to be in this profession. So it's I guess it's kind of a two-part question, and if it's not the same movie, that's totally fine. But what was the movie that got you into wanting to go down this career path? And then what was the uh, soundtrack or score, or and or you know CD, what what have you, that got you into knowing that you wanted to compose music? Well, I was a kid actually, probably seven, eight years old. And I used to get up at like five o'clock in the morning to watch these old monster movies that came on TV, like Creatures from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein and, you know, all these great things. And so I thought I wanted to be a movie monster guy, like, you know, do makeup or I I wasn't sure what, but just something because I thought that was awesome. And, um, but then I kind of got into the music thing and in, you know, in high school, I, I, would have been very happy to be the next Depeche Mode, you know, I mean, <laughs> I had all these synths like that one behind me on the other side. Yeah. Um, but uh, I got into college and I found out that they had a film scoring program in, in Boston, the Berkeley College of Music. And so yeah. I, I headed back that direction. And, you know, some of the scores that hit me early were obviously the John Williams stuff, you know, yeah. was amazing, is amazing. Um, but you know, then I started hearing like Danny Elfman doing Batman, you know, that was a, that was a big influence on me and, um, Edward Scissorhands after that. And, um, gosh, just tons of things. But, um, uh, frankly, and I forgot to mention this, but, but the show that really told me that I wanted to be a film composer was Miami Vice. Because I, I, I loved the show and Jan Hammer, who did the music, was just a wizard, in my opinion. Like, I had no idea how he was doing what he was doing. And, you know, I'll never have keyboards that expensive. And, you know, <laughs> I was just a kid, you know, but but I loved it. I, I recorded episodes on on VHS. I mean, I'm showing my age now, you know, but uh it uh, I just loved the show. And, and the thing about that show and the thing that I've really tried to take with me along the way is, is a sense of vibe. Something they did so well, Michael Mann did so well with setting a scene and having a vibe. 
you know, when Frank Zappa is standing there looking at you and he's a drug dealer or whatever he was, they just, they had this music that just set the scene, you know? Totally. So that was a, that was a huge influence on me. That's a very cool show. Like that, that was, like, every character on that show was like, damn, they're like, they're just so cool. And then like yeah. you just, the music that accompanied, that accompanied it was, it just had like that swag before anybody was using the term swag. Like, yep. um, cool. It was just, a, it was just cool. Yeah. yeah. The, the uh, classic monsters though, which one was your favorite? Creature from the Black Lagoon, I Creature. think. Yeah. yeah, my mom made a full costume for me with, you know, with the scales and everything, the headpiece. <laughs> that, poor, but, uh, that poor guy, we we saw one of the originals, like, latex, like, one of the full done in a museum. And I was just like, man, that poor guy. I don't know. Have you seen Monster Squad? Yeah, I have. That that poor Gilman too. There's certain scenes in there where I could, that guy in that suit looks like man, he's struggling to get through it, but not the, comfortable. Yeah, all those scores, man, like Frankenstein, Dracula, all that old black and white Universal stuff is just like yeah. You talk about setting Blackman. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say you talk about setting the mood before you even get like a, an actual. Uh, frame of motion picture with the title cards and the score just kicks in like right away it's just yeah it hates you there right away it's awesome yeah it's fun it's really fun the uh, the career that you have had is there a genre that you haven't gotten to necessarily really put your handprint on that you want to still I've always wanted to do a Western. Um, hmm. I'm from a farm in Arizona. That's where I grew up. It's about three miles from the Mexican border. And so um, I think a Western would be a lot of fun. But, you know, somebody else asked me this question recently. And I, I think also I haven't really done a story in space, you know. Hmm. And I think that would be really cool. It's just it comes with all of its own, you know, things that conventions that, you know, you have. Um, so yeah, in space or Lord of the Rings wouldn't suck either. You know, <laughs> I'd be I'd be happy to do anything on that. So yeah, Amazon Prime, like get Timothy on the phone, man, with your like multi-billion-dollar project that you got coming down the the turnpike. Yeah, I know yeah, there's the big room. The big fish came out of the deep water for that one. I'll guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the way that streaming has really changed everything um, in the last you know 10 years is it's pretty wild to think about I mean you talk about uh, Chuck and waiting for that show every week I can remember that that it was like on because all the networks had their blocks on certain mm -hmm. nights that was like the two hour blocks and then here comes streaming Netflix does the binge the binge thing where it's all, we're giving it to you all at once, watch it at your leisure. But now Disney Plus with Mandalorian and the Marvel shows that they've dropped, 
it's gone back to the traditional TV format where each week we're going to give you, if you're lucky, you're going to get two, but you're probably only going to get one. And it's like, it's reinvigorated the whole uh, water cooler talk thing again. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Cause you can talk to your friend who hasn't binged the series. You're like, Oh, have you seen the last step? No, be quiet. Don't tell me, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like, if you don't watch Stranger Things in the first 48 hours, like, you can't have a <laughs> conversation with anybody. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, but is there something you as just, like, a, a, a fan are watching or getting excited to see come out that that you are particularly enjoying currently? My wife and I are absolutely addicted to uh, Yellowstone, the uh, Kevin Costner yeah. series. I gotta check it's, that uh, out. You're like the fifth. Oh person. man, it's so. I just want to go live there more than anything else. <laughs> just move the crew out, and I'll move in. It's a, they got this fantastic house, you know. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of fun. It's 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 a well done series. I mean, it's you know it's a drama, so there's some some ridiculous things that happen, but it's still it's still really well done, and uh, that's that's fun. What else? Um, I mean, you know, I watch Squid Game like everyone else, and. Uh, Thought that was amazing, just visually yeah. off the rails. Um, what else have I been watching? Um, so I can think of at the moment, but yes, I, I tend to stay fairly active. <laughs> you, you'll never play red, white, green light the same way again after that. <laughs> no, sir, you won't. <laughs> that uh, there was somewhere. I don't know if it was L.A. or one of the major cities had a squid game pop-up not too long ago. Really? And they brought the, they had her. So the pop-up was pretty much that arena, um, which spoilers, if you haven't seen it, but the, the animatronic that uh, was the girl doing the red light, green light that, yeah, she was out there. That would have been, I don't know if they were actually playing red light, green light or what they were actually doing, but yeah, this, that's Squid Game, and again, that's another uh, you know Asian cult, Asian uh, culture horror project. Korean, yeah, also Korean. Korean, I believe. Yeah, the the filmmaker was saying that it was basically his commentary on growing up there and seeing the the infrastructure and the uh, the climate of it's very very much the haves and the poverty stricken, um, and he encapsulated that like to a team mm. that show. I mean, my God. Um, the other thing too, about uh, this film that you guys just completed is it's one of those films that kind of like squid game where you do, at least I did um, kind of look introspectively because the subject matter is it's not just and I love Friday the 13th something fierce but now this this like wave of cinema it seems like the horror movies and the villains and the subject matter it almost feels like it's getting deeper I don't know if you're noticing that being more in the uh inside of the 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 profession or not seeing the things that you're seeing come across and you're getting to work on but does it seem like to you that like 
while they're still making Halloween movies and stuff like that, it seems like a lot more real horror, I guess, for lack of a better term. Like the subject material is getting more deep than just a psycho in a mask. Yeah, I, I feel like it's more psychological. I think that, you know, as we go further into the genre and people have seen everything under the sun, yeah. you know, um, you start to go into people's heads and, and it's an interesting place to be in a horror movie, you know, because it, um, the thing about this film was that he, he wasn't super stable to begin with. So it didn't take a whole lot <laughs> to right. send him spinning off into his, his own world. But um, it's, you know, I, I think the one thing about horror is I, I remember watching the Blair Witch project, the, mm -hmm. the first one when it came out and I saw it in a big theater with, with a bunch of people. And when the lights went out and then there was this horrible stuff going on, it was all in your head. Mm -hmm. You know, everything terrifying about that movie was in my head. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you can apply that to some of these things to where, you know, I think Joel, the director, did a good job of not explicitly showing everything. You know, mm -hmm. you kind of you, you, you understand what's going on and, you know, based on the context and also based on the fact that you're hearing little noises, you think there are people in the walls, but you're not sure and you know it's just um it, it's a little bit more intelligent i guess than than just a straight up slasher you know which is great too <laughs> how, that. <laughs> how was jake work, working with him as far as his you know going back and forth with you was he very hands-on was he like here's some tempo music do your best to match it like what was that experience like he was great. He gave me a lot of room to run, uh, which I always appreciate because then you can kind of, you know, try to do something different rather than just give them the temp again, you know, yeah. in a way that won't get them sued, you know, yeah. um, which I've, I've been on that train and that's no fun at all. But, um, you know, Joel was great. The, the only issue with Joel was that he was in New Zealand for a lot of the time that I was scoring this movie. Um, yeah. And he was working on Avatar uh, 12 or 13, whichever one they're on now. Uh, <laughs> they're doing them all at once. They're just going to drop yeah. like next year. It's going to be like Squid Game, but each one's a movie. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I had a chance to spend time with him before he went down there. And I, and I showed him that instrument I was telling you about, the, the hammered dulcimer thing. He's like, yeah, he's like, do more of that, you know? So I was like, okay, good. You know, we have a, we have a flavor we can use now. And so um, just in the beginning, it was a matter of just sending him things and kind of bouncing some stuff back and forth. But, but he was fantastic. He, he really gave me a lot of room to move, which is always greatly appreciated by a composer. You know, you getting into the industry my day job, I work with high school kids and a lot of the kids on my caseload take either piano or guitar. Uh, they, it's kind of, it's interesting in our projects, everyone who kind of contributes to a project, I have kind of come to find out, sees the project while this end result is like the movie, hide and seek. You're seeing it 
musically and in your mind you're like okay this music this where he as a director is like this is how i want it to look cinematically um makeup cost like everybody has like their own thing and these kids when i'm I'm sitting in on their guitar classes like i'm seeing them see the music in a way that i can't see it which is cool to witness in person but my question is like what when you have like a kid who's getting ready to graduate high school go to college and they want to be involved in scoring cinema or just doing like the next level what what advice would you give that person it's a great question um you know i i always try to focus with with young people and they you know if they express an interest in doing this and you just start talking to them and say what what do you like to do you know, well i like to watch movies and i said that's good that's a great thing you watch a lot of movies as many as you can watch you know Mm-hmm. And also, what are you listening to? Well, I only listen to one band from Sweden. Okay, well, you might want to expand that a little bit, you know, <laughs> because it's important to have a, a wide range of music knowledge to be a film composer just because we get asked to do so many different things. And um, so it, you know, I, I'm also a big believer in education. And I think that, you know, there are wildly successful composers that, that had no secondary education as far as film scoring. They don't have a degree or anything and it didn't hurt them at all. But I think that it, it's a good thing to be able to go to a school and to get some training in this because there's a, a large technical aspect to it that you wouldn't know right off the bat, just, you know, how to synchronize things and, um, you know, learning to also, they, they tell you how to talk to filmmakers, you know, they tell you what it might be like when you're in a room with three producers and a director and, you know, those, those kinds of things are nice to hear about before you're doing them, you know? Right. Um, so I, I just, I, I think finding a place to get some education, whether that's, you know, online or whether it's going to a school in person. Um, and then, you know, the next thing is just, you just got to have a lot of a lot of passion for what you're doing because this is a very very difficult business to work in and you're going to get knocked down more times than you're going to you know get lifted up and so you got to just be able to get up again and keep going you know and um i was very very naive when i first started this and i think it it saved me you know because you you have to have that kind of passion for for what you can do what you want to do and you know there'll there'll be plenty of time for the world to beat it out of you later but um you have to have a lot of passion for it in the beginning Um, i don't know does that answer your question no it definitely does that i would say in in cinema you know probably live theater or live entertainment as well like those two are probably the top two um you better have thick skin um, and learn to not necessarily take it personally as much as maybe take it as constructive criticism and, okay, they're not looking for this because of this. I need to go get better at this. And then the next one that's in my pocket type of a thing. No, yeah, you, you hit it on the head. I went to, you know, film school down South and, 
I've talked to numerous directors who have had their work, you know, distributed. And I'm like, well, where did you go to school? I didn't go to school. And it's like, well, damn, okay. Um, <laughs> and they're, you know, they're out the gate and running. But I think that the lessons that I learned, kind of like how you just pointed out, from going to film school and the people that, you know, taught us um, uh, certain classes, you know, the guy, you know, our lighting professor, he's like, you may have noticed my work on, you know, Fast and Furious, five through nine. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed your work. Um, so it's like that level of getting to learn from people like that, that it's like, a complete like just shut up and listen to what this person has to say because what they have to say is going to be valuable i think that is worth the time and money to to go get the the higher education so i definitely agree with you on that um can i tell a can i tell a really quick story that i think kind of ties into that um yeah, i went to, to berkeley college of music like i said and I came out to Los Angeles after I finished up and I had this uh, Berkeley alumni directory, which is the book with a bunch of names and phone numbers. And I found uh, Alan Silvestri's number in there. Oh. And Alan's, you know, you know who Alan is. Yeah, Back yeah. In the future and, you know, yeah. gazillion other things, uh, Avengers. Um, and I found his phone number. And so for about two weeks, I had sweaty palms, you know, just like, do I call him? Do I don't call him? Uh, I shouldn't call him. Finally, I picked the phone up and I called him. And he answered the phone. It was like his home phone number or whatever. And <laughs> this guy could not have been nicer to me. He was an absolute mensch. He asked me what I was doing. How was it going? What are you doing to keep food on the table? You know, and just, just a, a prince. And, you know, I said, well, would it be possible to like have coffee or lunch with you sometime when you're in Los Angeles? And he said, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and we got off the phone and, you know, and then what he did was he set up a thing for other Berkeley students to, you know, come down to the Sportsman's Lodge there on uh, wherever that is, Ventura or something here yeah. in L.A. And yeah, he talked for like two and a half hours, you know, and just told us about his life, told us how he got there. He took questions. Um, so I, I have never forgotten that. And I am so grateful. The guy could so easily have just hung up on me, you know, <laughs> wrong number, you know? Yeah. no hablo inglés, you know, and, um, but he didn't. And he, it just means a lot to me. And it, and it continues to mean a lot to me, you know, 25 years into my career. And so I, I try to follow through on that and, and answer questions for young people or, or whomever when I can about what I do and how I got here and, you know, help them if I can, or, you know, just answer questions or whatever. So anyway, I just thought, you know, and that was a direct result of me going to Berkeley college of music and getting the little red alumni directory. So that you bring up a good point too. with that is if you don't know, don't be afraid to ask. I think that's a big thing that inhibits a lot of people in really any profession, but especially in like a profession that can be as intimidating as, you know, movie making is reaching out to someone like that. Like the worst thing that could happen is like what you just said, he hangs up the phone and you go about your day. You're like, well, that sucked, but well, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. But 
the fact that now he didn't, like you never know. You never have that conversation. He never sets up that event, you know, who knows without getting to talk to you first. And so right. that, that is like one thing um, my wife and I are avid Disney people too. And one of my favorite Disney quotes is your dreams can come true with hard work and the courage to pursue them. But you got to take that first step to pursue them. And that's just kind of something that we have kind of instilled like that first step, no matter what it is, is the most important step. And I think a lot of the time, once you've worked yourself up to it in your mind, thinking that you can take that first step, it just becomes easier and easier uh, the following steps to get whatever you're trying to get accomplished, accomplished. And so that's a, yeah. that is an awesome uh, thing. That's pretty rad too. I mean, it's Sylvester. Like everybody, if you're a Marvel fan, you know, that freaking song, there's no yeah. question about it. <laughs> um, the uh, Now with hide and seek being available, I gotta ask you before we let you go, what do you have something coming down, uh, in 2022 that we could look forward to seeing your stamp on. Yeah, I actually have a project I'm really excited about. It's called Waterman. Um, and it's about Duke Kahanamoku, who was a famous uh, Hawaiian um, Olympic swimmer and also uh, like father of modern surfing. And he brought surfing to Australia in like 1914. They didn't know how to surf sideways on the wave. They would just go straight in. <laughs> So he went down there and taught him how to go sideways and they've, you know, perfected it. But uh, it's, it's a fantastic film. It's a, it's a documentary uh, about his life. And um, I knew little to nothing about Duke when I started this project. And I, I kid you not, I, I want to be more like the guy. I think that this world needs more people like him. And I, and I try to really think about, well, okay, what would Duke do in this situation? You know, and I, I, that may sound silly, but it's it's a really inspiring story, and it's going to come out in theaters um, on the West Coast, I think, in Hawaii, and California, and Utah. Uh, but then it will have a streaming home. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say where yet, um, unfortunately, but it it will it will be streaming. Um, Jason Momoa did the narration, and. Oh, um, yeah, so it's cool. He's going to go out and help do press for it and, and whatnot. So it, it will get out there in general release eventually, um, probably late spring, I would I would imagine. Perfect time for a surfing movie. Yeah. Well, Timothy, man, I thank you uh, for taking the time out to talk to us. Go see Hide and Seek, whether you're getting to see it um, – on a big screen or just at home, it's definitely worth watching. It's a new, a new take on a, a classic that I got to go find the the Korean version of. Um, but it's definitely not one of those horror films that you're going to feel like you've seen it ten times, and it's just been repackaged. This, when I've sat down and watched it, I'm like, damn, this is holding my attention uh, significantly. So that's great. Yeah. Congratulations on that, and uh, Thank you. we look forward to uh, seeing what you got uh, coming out down the line, and we will we will do this again sometime. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate it. So there you go, man. There's Tim, Timothy Stewart, 
Jones, great composer, done a lot of fun things. That movie Hide and Seek is actually quite a bit of fun as well. So I think that, uh, yeah, man, everybody should have uh, a good uh, scare this holiday season. And then if psychological horror is your bag, Hide and Seek is definitely a, a cool way to do it so next week on the podcast channel before christmas proper uh we're gonna have one maybe two more podcasts and the first is going to be uh a panel from the diz family reunion which is actually going to be the horrific podcast and that is literally just a history of the haunted mansion and then the second is going to be a tribute panel or tribute show uh also from dis family reunion um which will be a um a talk with three actors from different disney rides so my plan is to get those out uh Monday and Wednesday and then you are also going to want to be paying attention Monday and Wednesday for some cool uh, horrific network announcements to drop so both of those um, both of those are things to look forward to next week on our podcasting channel man coming back in 2021 uh, 2022 we have a couple of cool things this year. First time ever, uh, the voting is actually going to probably be up upon you hearing this. If it's not live already, it will be uh, before the end of this week. The first ever Roblox Awards, we're going to be voting. That voting process will be open as well um, throughout uh, next week leading up into Christmas. And then we will be recording that show uh, probably in between Christmas and New Year's, honestly. So I say the last podcast of 2021, not the case. Last podcast before Christmas, probably the case. Those two I mentioned. Um, and yeah, man, we're just keeping, keeping moving. Stay tuned for the fun announcements next week. Like I said, Haunted Mansion history, so lighter of the dark. We also got another cool one, too. That'll probably be out the following week. Um, kind of double downing on the Diz Family Union because there's a couple that they work either uh, tribute show or horrific podcast, so we're, we're doing both just to kind of help with this backlog of stuff, like I said. And, yeah, on top of the interview requests, on top of the, the press stuff. So tons of stuff to talk about, man. So, anyway, again, check out Hide and Seek. Thank you to Tim. Uh, Timothy Stewart-Jones for being our guest this on this show and uh yeah stay spooky everybody